0: Welcome to the Fear and Greed Daily Interview, I'm Adam Lang. Agricultural farmers are vulnerable to so many factors outside their control, from weather to pests. Mariculture, or marine farming, faces the same challenges, which means oyster growers are no different. This year we've seen a large chunk of the Sydney rock oyster harvest wipe out. Now the industry is calling for the public and restaurateurs to rally behind the sector in the same way the community got behind dairy farmers in 2016. Brad Verdich is an oyster farmer with ASX-listed oyster grower, East 33. Brad joins me this morning. Brad, welcome to Fear and Greed. G'day, Adam. Pleasure to be here. Why has it been such a tough year for oysters?
1: Look, oysters grow best when they have average rainfall for their estuary. When you have above-average rainfall, you have below-average growth and survivability of those oysters. That, in coupled with some uh, viral impacts that have come about partly because of that rainfall and some other natural impacts that have happened, we've had three really hard years for oyster farming,
0: and three in a row. And I'm I'm sure that they have a compounding effect as well.
1: They do. They definitely do. So, where a Sydney rock oyster takes three years to grow from our initial catching or growing in the hatchery to delivering into the customer's plate, it's those three years that uh, make the impact and make the difference. So not only does a drought affect you or a flood affect you for that season, it affects you for the next three years ongoing.
0: So in terms of the scale of this impact, you've described what's happening and how long it might last. What damage has already been done? Well,
1: in terms of impact and scale, last year we looked at around 70 million oysters were produced by uh, the New South Wales-Sydney Rock oyster industry. We're looking this year to be around 45 to 50 million oysters produced. Wow. A fair percentage of that has come from oysters that have been wiped out due to flooding, due to infrastructure being essentially washed out the headlands with the associated oysters with going along with it. And in addition to that, there's been a virus called QX, which has heavily impacted the Port Stephens growing area. Port Stephens has, in recent years, produce around 15% of the Sydney rock oyster crop. And those oysters have been basically decimated.
0: And when that happens, Brad, what process do you actually go through? Are we talking about you have to remove those oysters, destroy them, clean and start again? What happens?
1: So the QX virus is a virus which only affects Sydney rock oysters. It doesn't affect other species of oyster. And when it, it affects the oyster, it essentially prevents the oyster from taking nutrition from the environment. It inflames its intestines and its guts. So it stops the oyster from growing and feeding. So the oyster can still be alive, but it's essentially starving to death when it's infected. So when we pick up an oyster and look at it, on the outside it looks healthy and we could put it in a bag and ship it off to a a processing depot to be opened and, and served to customers. It's not until it's opened that you can usually tell whether that oyster is sick or healthy. Wow. The virus doesn't affect humans, has no effect on humans in any manner at all, but the cost in sorting through those oysters to figure out which ones are the good oysters and which ones are the bad oysters is fairly impactful. That coupled with, you've already lost 80% of your crops, so now you've got 20% left. That 20% that's left, 50% is sick and dying and, and the other 50% is still serviceable. So there's a there's a big way out of what you've got to do to get the oysters that you have How much labor do you want to put into getting the oysters that you have that are still alive onto market? Or do you say, no, I'll scrap those and step away for a while and see what happens with the environment? Do I change my production and change to a different species and change over to the Pacific oyster, uh, which isn't affected by the QX virus? Or do I hold out and wait to see if the QX virus comes back in another season and, and try my luck again?
0: So all of the challenges that you've outlined, and they can be devastating, what is so special about Sydney rock oysters that makes them worth growing? Look, if you took
1: a pile of oysters that were grown commercially worldwide, and that's say 36,000 oysters in that pile, only one of those oysters would be a Sydney rock oyster. Wow. It's less than 0.1%. Now, here in New South Wales, and Sydney especially, we don't see a Sydney rock oyster as being a rarity or a scarce commodity. That's because they're so prevalent on menus everywhere where you see. But in actual fact, on a worldwide scale, they're actually a very rare oyster and a very special oyster. So they, I believe, one of the most, the best tasting oysters in the world, and they should be treasured and valued as such.
0: They're a great delicacy, and I think Brad, like you suggested, I'm one of the lucky ones who get to eat these from time to time. The difference between Sydney rock oysters and Pacific oysters, you've talked about the three-year growing cycle and other oysters. What's the growing time like, the location, the availability and that kind of thing that increasingly makes the Sydney rock oysters so precious?
1: In comparison to a Pacific oyster, a Sydney rock oyster, as you said, takes three years to grow, whereas a Pacific oyster takes 12 to 18 months. Still a very good oyster and great eating, and we've got some wonderful producers in Australia that produce high-quality Pacific oysters. But of that 36,000 oysters that we mentioned before produced worldwide, 95% of those are Pacific oysters. So when we're talking less than 0.1% are Sydney Rock worldwide, more than 95% are Pacific. So the reason why the Pacific is so prolific around the world is how fast they grow and how easily they adapt to different climates. Originally, they are endemic to Japan and they've been transported around, around the world on ships. As, as we've moved into industrial age, just allowed oysters to move around the world at a much faster rate and people have selected them to, to grow in their local estuaries and in local oceans so that they can uh, grow them quickly and get a high-quality protein at a, a quick rate.
0: Stay with me. We'll be back in a minute. I'm speaking to East 33 oyster farmer, Brad Verdich. So you mentioned that the oyster harvest, the Sydney rock oyster harvest coming up has been declining again this year and in recent decades. Could it reach the point of not being economically viable anymore?
1: Well, when you look back at historically, the Sydney rock oyster industry back in 1976 produced over 200 million oysters. Last year we produced 70 million and this year we're looking at 50. So we can say that that drop from 70 to 50 is probably due to weather-induced and, and viral impacts, But the drop from 200 to 70, in my belief, is being caused because of downward pressure on farm gate prices. Okay. And that downward pressure has essentially come because there hasn't been a vertically integrated player in the market that has recognized, hey, what's the true cost to grow an oyster and rewarding the farmers for that product? Where there was that vertically integrated farmers back in the 1970s and the early 1980s.
0: So Brad, on that, how does East 33 work?
1: Well, East 33 is a publicly listed company, as you mentioned in the introduction, but essentially it was nine founding oyster farming families that have been farming since 1883, I believe is the earliest lease holdings that were incorporated into the company. Um, That was with the Brown family. My family is the Verdich family. We've been oyster farming since the 50s and 60s. Started in the Sutherland Shire, my grandfather, the youngest brother of I think four or five brothers, and they were all oyster farmers and fishermen. They moved up and down the coast and did highway oyster farming, which was moving oysters from one estuary to another estuary to take advantage of the best characteristics of each estuary. Mm. So in doing that, we've also brought together, when East 33 came together as a company, we brought together a processing depot in Sydney called CMB Oysters. It's now transferred to East 33 farming as well. And... They've been serving the market for the over 30 years. So through that network of suppliers, they've been buying oysters from oyster farmers from up and down the coast and using that network of sharing infrastructure and sharing resources to be able to farm effectively and efficiently for the conditions that are thrown up to us.
0: So bringing some scale and efficiency to the whole production process, And in terms of the challenges that you've described, what are you hoping to see in terms of support for the industry, Brad?
1: I guess what I'd love to see is the general public be aware of the difference between a Sydney Rock Oyster and a Pacific Oyster for one, Mm -hmm. that it takes three years to grow a Sydney Rock Oyster, 12 to 18 months for a Pacific, and therefore, when you put them on the menu, we should differentiate between a Sydney Rock Oyster and a Pacific Oyster. The Sydney rock oyster is a native oyster to the New South Wales coastline, growing in only 41 locations. And yeah, we want to respect that provenance of the Sydney rock oyster, of where it's come from.
0: Yeah, that it is native to this area. And Brad, you mentioned oyster farming's been in your family, not just as East 33 now, but for some generations. Take me back. When did you eat your first oyster?
1: Uh, I think there's a photo of me eating an oyster when I'm uh, about two years old. (laughs) Okay. I don't think I had the best look on my face when I did it but um
0: <laughs> you later learned to appreciate the delicacy of the Sydney rock oyster
1: that's right I mean, I've grown up on the farm after school and after, on the school holidays and on the weekends my job was to be on the oyster farm and uh, hold the boat as it was moving along down the rows as the farmers were picking up the trays and, and as I get older I start doing the jobs alongside the, the men that are working there and the women that are working there and uh yeah, it's been a really rewarding way of living. I've gone off and done other things in my career, um, but I've kept, always kept being drawn back to oyster farming um, just because of the, the way of interacting with the environment and caring for a, a natural product.
0: That's a great story. So, Brad, having appreciated that through your life almost as apprentice now to, to running an operation, how, or how good is it to be part of East 33?
1: East 33 has essentially allowed us to take control and look at the future whereas before as a family business we were looking at what are we doing next week and and next month now we're able to sit down and say okay what are we doing in 10 and 15 years so we have a long-term plan not just for our business but for the industry as a whole it's essential that if we want the Sydney Rock Oyster industry to survive that we have to put in some strategic planning and actions behind those plans that allow us to encourage growth and profitability in the industry.
0: That's terrific, Brad, and I'll uh, be very happy to keep supporting the Sydney Rock Oyster Market. Thanks so much for talking to Fear and Greed.
1: No problem. Thank you very much, Adam.
0: That was Brad Verdich, an oyster farmer with ASX-listed company East 33. This is the Fear and Greed Daily Interview. Join us every morning for the full episode of Fear and Greed, Australia's most popular business podcast. I'm Adam Lang. Enjoy your day.